0: We're going to pick up tonight in Hosea, right in chapter 8. The introduction for Hosea has been set out, the framework has been laid. And at this point, the book has kind of wrapped or ramped up to its full fervor. And so everything we're going to look at tonight is uh, is essentially the sins of Israel and the impending judgment. Next week, we'll get back to some hope, some silver linings, some restoration, some promises, and some faithfulness of God but these chapters uh, basically record the aspects of Hosea's ongoing ministry, which, remember, spans about 30 years and six kings for the northern kingdom, um, as he tries to get his people's attention for how, how serious things have truly gotten and where it's all headed. Chapter eight, verse one, set the trumpet to your lips. One like a vulture is over the house of the Lord because they have transgressed my covenant and rebelled against my law. Okay, and so notice here, Hosea opens with a call to sound the alarm, right? Put the trumpet to your mouth, blow the alarm. And then it uses an image, one like a vulture is over the house of the Lord. Now, that's actually a strange illustration, because the primary target of Hosea's ministry is the northern kingdom, which doesn't have the house of the Lord, right? The temple is in Jerusalem. Uh, But the image is actually of value here, not because of the impending danger on Jerusalem, but of the picture language here, and why it would matter in the temple, okay? So what goes on at the temple? worship of God through sacrifice, okay, which means that animals are constantly being slaughtered and ritually prepared, and so take a carrion bird, like a vulture or an eagle, and bring them into the presence of a temple, okay, where there's constant animal dying. That is a problem. It's like all the way back in Genesis chapter 15, where God says, all right, Abraham, I'm going to make a covenant with you I want you to slaughter animals and lay them in half and set them up for the day. And then Abraham spends the rest of the day scaring away the birds, right? Waiting for God to show up. Think also of the significance of these sacrifices. Here they are dedicated to the Lord and an unclean animal, a vulture, is entering the temple, the holy place, and desecrating the sacrifices that are devoted to God. It's a problem, okay? And so, the sounding of the alarm here is a picture of danger, like a carrion bird always is, but it's also a picture of corruption and of desecration, okay? The problem is, in the northern kingdom, there's all sorts of desecrating and corrupting influence everywhere, and no trumpet is being sounded. It's just life as usual. It's just we worship Yahweh and we worship Baal. It's just we go through the practices and we disregard the covenant. The normal way of life no longer rings any bells. It's like when you go to McDonald's and the fry alarm is going off, right? It's that really mundane and loud beep. But the employees don't hear it anymore because they've just acclimatized to the sound of it. But we waiting in line are going crazy thinking, all right, the fries are ready. Is somebody going to get that? Right? There's a callousness that he's trying to overcome. And so he uses this really strong picture to get them thinking about how serious things really are. What have they done that's caused this corruption? The end of verse 1, they have transgressed my covenant and rebelled against my law. And then notice, verse 2, to me they cry, my God, we, Israel, we know you. And so here is this corrupting influence and they're like, yeah, but we're really close with God. We, we know you, God. Come to our rescue, God. But they're really far from God. Israel has spurned the good, or literally in the Hebrew here, spurned the good one. Okay, they've set aside God. They say, yeah, we have a relationship with him, but they've actually distanced themselves from God, and therefore the enemy shall pursue them. Now, what does it look like for them to spurn God? Illustration number one, verse four. They made kings... But not through me. They set up princes, but I knew it not. Okay. So the idea is here that the northern kingdom no longer involved God in appointing leadership. Okay. If you go back to the book of Deuteronomy, in chapter 17, it lays out the rules for Israel's kings. And there's all sorts of interesting restrictions and requirements, but number one is, I will select the king from among you that's the number one rule for kings in israel but in the northern kingdom here's how you become king okay and this has been going on for generations and generations you kill the guy on the throne okay there was constant violent upheaval in the northern tribes as one person came into power and then through intrigue or outright attack another person came into power and the truth is the northern kingdom in terms of subjects and citizens had just gone, well, that's the way it is. It's just where they lived. But they had completely surrendered and separated themselves from this. Now it was power and not providence that determined leadership. On top of that, with silver and gold, they made idols for their own destruction. There's a little bit of irony there. It's hardly thinly veiled. But you don't make idols to destroy you. You make idols to save you, okay? but it shows here the blindness and the foolishness of it. Verse five, I have spurned your calf, O Samaria. And remember here, Samaria is the capital city of the Northern tribes of Israel. And he says, I'm against your cow. My anger burns against them. How long will they be incapable of innocence? For it is from Israel, a craftsman made it. It's not a God the calf of Samaria shall be broken into pieces. Now, one of the things that's so striking about the worship practices of the northern tribes, and this begins when the northern tribes begin, okay, in the days of Jeroboam. Jeroboam, who is the last king of, well, he's the first king of the northern tribes, and he's the last one to be appointed by God, okay, with maybe the exception of Jehu uh, at a later point. But, Uh, he is appointed by God. He says, I'm taking 10 of the tribes away from Solomon's son, Rehoboam, and giving them to you. And he's like, and I, if you will be faithful to the covenant, I will put your son on the throne and your son's son and so on and so forth, just as I did with David. So Jeroboam becomes king. And the first act of business is he goes, I've got a real threat to my security of power everybody who's a part of my northern tribes still heads to jerusalem for worship at least three times a year all the men pack it up and go to jerusalem where the temple is but what's right next door to the temple the palace where the king of judea the descendant of david is ruling and he goes eventually david's going to win them back the sons of david are going to draw them back and my family will lose power and so he Decides to use religious ends for political convenience. He says, You know what I'll do? I'll set up our own religious cult that doesn't need the temple, that doesn't need the Levites, that doesn't need Jerusalem. That way nobody will be tempted and drawn back towards the south. And so he sets up not one, but two golden calves. And he appoints priests not by God's election through the tribe of Levi, but to the highest bidder, apparently. Anyone who expressed interest could become a priest, like the internet ordinations that we have today. He sets up this whole cult just to keep his people from straying back to Judea, and that includes these golden calves. But that's that's their religion. That's what they worship, a political convenience, a power strategy. Okay, And... To be honest, these things, the origin of this stuff is not unknown. You know, there are sometimes, even in Christian history, where we see things like this and we go, really? Right? I've always wondered about the Church of England that effectively begins when the king can't get the divorce that he wants. So he goes, well, we're our own church now. Right? That's the beginning of the Church of England. Okay? It's similar to that. And so when he says here, A craftsman made it. It's not God. He's not stating things they don't know. But there's a second thing here. See, the golden calves, plural, that Jeroboam make, have a precedent. They have a a preceding point in Israel's history. In fact, we can even guess where he probably got the idea. In the Exodus, when Israel is at Mount Sinai, and Moses is up on it, receiving the covenant. The people get restless. And, and to be fair, what they're going through is unprecedented. Okay? Their leader, Moses, they've just seen all the miracles that brought them out of Egypt. He goes up to the top of a mountain that's literally on fire and doesn't come back for more than a month. And so they come to Aaron, the priest, Moses' brother, and they go, we don't know what happened to Moses, but we really need a God. And to be honest, we need a God that's a little bit less than a burning mountain. And so they say, here, here's a bunch of gold. Make us a God. And he builds them a golden calf. Okay. Now, remember, this is juxtaposed against God's revelation of the covenant happening simultaneously up the mountain to Moses. But what's important for what we're looking at tonight is what happens next. Moses comes down the mountain... He grinds this golden calf to powder, mixes it with water, and makes Israel drink it, okay? Which is, like, the most intense single mom punishment I've ever heard of, right? Um, but here, there's a reference to that. In the same way that that calf was destroyed, so also Samaria's cow is going to be destroyed. Look again at verse 6. The calf of Samaria shall be broken to pieces. Okay, I'm going to grind it to a pulp again. Now again, what is the significance of that? One more Old Testament story, just by way of illustration. There's an occasion where God wants to deliver Israel in the days of the judges, and he calls on a young man named Gideon. And Gideon is not a courageous hero, he's a coward. And so God starts small with Gideon. Before he delivers Israel, he says, let's just focus on setting your family right. Out in front of your house, Gideon, your dad has set up this statue of Baal I just want you to take it down that's where God starts with Gideon and so Gideon does it in the middle of the night quietly so nobody knows it was him and in the morning everybody finds the statue of Baal laying on the ground and the city is up in arms and as is always the case when people try and hide things he doesn't hide well enough and so they're like we're pretty sure Gideon did this let's gather together mob mentality put him to death and Gideon's dad comes to his rescue. And this is the argument he makes. He says, don't you think Baal is capable of delivering himself? If Baal is God, can't he defend himself? Why do you need to defend him? Right. And here, God is basically saying, your gods are going to be unable to resist my attack. Okay. Then we get to verse 7. For they sow the wind, and they shall weep, reap the whirlwind. Now, this is, this is a difficult, it's a provocative proverb, if you will. What does it mean to sow the wind and reap the whirlwinds? One idea might be that they have sown futility, right? It's just the wind. It's just a breath of air. But it's going to lead to judgment, a whirlwind, okay? That's the way it reads the most easily in English. But the, the Hebrew here is a little bit broken and a little bit challenging. And there is one verse that might shed a little bit light of light on the meaning here and it's found back in Deuteronomy 28. Now I'm not just cherry picking a reference that sounds similar to this. There's a reason why Hosea would be interested in Deuteronomy 28. Deuteronomy 28 is the part of the covenant where God lays out and all uh, lays out all of the consequences, the blessings for obedience and the curses for disobedience. If you read the prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and the minor prophets together closely, they live in these chapters. All the language for what God's going to do to Israel for unfaithfulness, they borrow from Moses. In fact, we'll see it in a few places tonight. But I just want to draw your attention to this verse, this particular curse in verse 38. It says here, You shall carry much seed into the field And you shall gather in little for the locusts shall consume it okay based on this idea you'll sow a lot and gather a little okay some have suggested the idea here is you will sow in the wind and you will reap in the whirlwind okay a light breeze is helpful For gardening in Israel because the way that you go about planting seeds is not poking holes and planting seeds one by one but casting them okay and so a a light breeze is helpful It, it might even have been seen if you will as a good omen because it's a helpful way to sow the seed but reaping in a storm is bad news storms weather is you know always the danger of farming and so the idea may be here work as hard as you want to succeed do everything you can to prosper and you will not okay as we'll see when we get to chapter 9 one of the contextual elements here that hosea is clearly addressing has to do with how good the crop season is going in israel and as we'll see that's because they are thanking baal for his provision and so god says well what if i turn off the tap of my blessings what if i tell you in advance Famine is coming and you're going to have to know that I have power over the farms and not Baal. In that case, the verse here is not you're doing futile things and it will lead to judgment, but have the best farming year you want. I will destroy it. Okay. In fact, notice the next part of this seems to affirm this understanding. The standing grain has no heads. It shall yield no flower. Okay. You can watch grain grow for seasons it can get or not for seasons but for months it can get taller and taller but if a storm rips through and removes all the heads there's no wheat the stalks is nothing but what carries the head where the wheat is and so effectively the idea here is the same thing i'm going to ruin the harvest he says even if it were to yield strangers will devour it now i just want you to notice that turn of phrase what does he say here? He says, there's going to be nothing. Even if there was, strangers will eat it. We're going to see that cadence a few times tonight in Hosea. It's one of his ways of turning phrases. It's an idea of um, escalation, right? It's a don't have your hopes up. In fact, have even less hope than don't have your hopes up, right? Okay, continuing here. Verse 8, Israel is swallowed up Already there among the nations as a useless vessel, for they have gone up to Assyria. Okay, now, if you're familiar with your history of the northern tribes of Israel, they will go up to Assyria as captives. That's not what Hosea is talking about here. He's talking about the fact that they have gone up to Assyria to get help, military help. In fact, Hosea does something here structurally that's easy for us to miss, but I want you to notice how what begins there in verse 9, for they have gone up to Assyria, ends at the end of verse 13 when it says they shall return to Egypt. Okay. Do you see how that kind of comes together? They have gone up to Assyria. They shall return to Egypt. It would be a normal poetic couplet if we put those two together. It's something we'd expect to find in the psalm. In fact, it sounds like something Hosea would say. But here he breaks it up. It's like delaying the punchline to a joke to let suspense build. And so the idea here is they've gone up to Assyria to help them politically. And then notice how Hosea compares this. He says, they're like a wild donkey wandering alone. The prophets use this illustration of a donkey on a couple of occasions. Most of the places, uh, like when Jeremiah uses it, It's a little bit more graphic than this it's a little bit more explicit okay a wandering donkey just sounds like a lost animal but in jeremiah's version it's a lustful donkey sniffing the wind because it smells you know in heat it smells a possible lover miles and miles away and apparently this is the problem with donkeys okay when they get stubborn and rebellious and hard to control is when they're in heat because they're just they just lose their minds so the idea here is that here's Israel wandering the wilderness, just sniffing out a lover, in this case Assyria, a hero, to come and save them. Okay. Ephraim, it says, have, has hired lovers, though they hire allies among the nations. See how the metaphor here is a sexual one, but the reality is a political one? Right? Though they hire allies among the nations... I will soon gather them up and the king and the princes shall soon writhe because of tribute. Like we talked about last week, this is exactly the pattern that goes down. Okay? Israel goes to Assyria and says, hey, you're strong. Would you protect us? And Assyria goes, sure, if you pay me. Right? And then it becomes a tribute because it's now like the bully and the lunch money. Now it's a situation where Well, now I know you're not strong enough to defend yourself against me, so I'm going to take advantage of it. And eventually, as that escalates, it ends up being Assyria themselves, the ones that they fled to for strength that destroys them. Okay? And that's what it means here when it says, because of the tribute. One of the things that's going to spoil the prosperity of Israel is them, you know, hiring protection that becomes something they need protection from. Because, verse 11, Ephraim has multiplied altars for sinning, they have become to him altars for sinning. Now, that's that's an ironic statement. The idea here is Ephraim's multiplied altars to deal with their sin, but the multiplication of altars was a sin itself, right? That's what an altar is for. It's for for the expunging of sin for the removal of guilt for propitiation but in this case it perpetuated sin okay it's it's like um it's like installing a bunch of hand washing stations but accidentally wiring them to the sewage line right it's supposed to be more and more cleaning but it's just more and more mess Verse 12, were I to write for him my laws by the 10,000s, they would be regarded as a strange thing. The idea here is God is saying, look, I've given you my law. I've laid it out. But like the, uh, you know, the TV shows where they do the man on the street interviews to show how stupid Americans are. The idea is Hosea says, I could go out on the street and nobody knows God's laws. We could write them everywhere, and so why is that the case? What has happened? In this case, it's because of foreign influence. It's not that Israel is lawless, it's that they've rejected their own law or forsaken it or ignored it because they're so comfortably adapted to the world around them. If you go back and you read especially Leviticus, but also Exodus and Deuteronomy, you will see that the earmark of Israel's law was distinction, difference, okay? But they've forgotten that. So now, you know, now it's like they have low biblical literacy. They don't recognize God's word when it's spoken. As for my sacrificial offerings, verse 13, they sacrifice meat and eat it, but the Lord does not accept them. One of the things that I think is the hardest for us to wrap our head around is while all of this worship of Baal is going on, worship of Yahweh continues. In fact, most scholars believe that during this time, and this was true in Judah as well, the worship of Yahweh became somewhat machinistic, going through the motions. It was removed from any ethical or covenantal component. It was separated from a relationship of God, and it became just do the sacrifices, get the cookie. It became just do the ritual, go through the motions, and God will have to comply. And how did they come to that understanding? Because that's how the other gods worked. Okay. For most of the ancient Near East, sacrifice was a form of magic. It was a form of manipulating the spiritual powers that be to get the things that you need. You play by the rules. You know, it's like running a math equation. But God was not that way. He was never that way. And so here, they are sacrificing the offerings. And not only that, they're eating it. Remember, one of the offerings of Israel was known as the fellowship offering. And most scholars believe it was the pinnacle of Jewish worship. So you're going to the temple, you're going to worship Yahweh, you're going to bring a handful of sacrifices, and there's an order to them, okay? You start with the guilt offering or the sin offering, those deal with the things that keep you from God. And then there's the burnt offering. Okay, and that's a recognition of consecration, laying yourself before God. But then came the fellowship offering. And what's unique about the fellowship offering is after it was slaughtered and put on the altar, a large portion of it would be cooked and then presented back to the offerer to have a feast with his friends and family. In other words, the heart of biblical worship in the Old Testament is fellowship with the living God. Okay, and so it's as if you're having a picnic at God's house, a barbecue in God's backyard. That's the picture. That's still happening. But now they're just going through the motions. There's no fellowship. There's no ritual, okay? Whereas they used to, you know, show up and bring all this food into God's house and sit down for a feast. Now they're just DoorDash deliverers and they just knock on the door, hand God the food and leave, okay? They've lost the heart of the covenant He says, now he will remember their iniquity and punish their sins. They shall return to Egypt, which, by the way, is where chapter 7 ended. Now, Hosea knows, and he said it a bunch of times, they're not headed to Egypt, they're heading to Assyria, so why does he mention Egypt here? Okay, and a side note, I don't assume any of you have a King James Bible here, but the King James Bible strangely says they shall return to Egypt in ships, which has to do with the the MT tradition of the Old Testament, and it just doesn't make any sense, okay? Um, The idea here is that they shall return to Egypt. In other words, the exodus itself will be reversed, right? Here they are in the promised land. How did they get here? Because God miraculously and graciously drew them out of Egypt, okay? Through the wilderness, brought them to the promised land of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Brought them into it and set them there. And when it says here, they shall return to Egypt, this is Deuteronomy chapter 28 language for reversal. Okay, for going back to the way things were. Why? Verse 14 for Israel has forgotten his maker and built palaces. Judah has multiplied fortified cities. Okay, what are those palaces and fortified cities? Their strength their self-preservation, their military installations to protect Israel from those around them. And God says, it's not going to do you any good. He finishes here, he says, so I'll send a fire upon his cities and she'll devour her strongholds. Chapter 9. As we get started here, Most of Hosea's oracles, the individual collections of prophecies we have, don't give us any sense of provenance, okay, of where they came from. Whereas if you read in Jeremiah, it says, and God said to Jeremiah, go to the temple and preach to the temple. We don't find a lot of that in Hosea. We don't find like we do in Isaiah. In the days of King Hezekiah, Isaiah went and said, we just find oracles here without context. So what I'm about to suggest to you is a suggestion and not a fact. But I want you to notice how significant this passage becomes if Hosea is presenting it during the fall festivals, okay, when the harvest is being celebrated. Very clearly, all the language of the opening verses of chapter 9 are focused on harvest, focused even on a time of rejoicing. And so I want you to picture this, this harvest party, right, where all of Israel is rejoicing in all of these crops, and here comes Hosea, and he begins shouting on the streets, and that is the context here. Verse 1. Rejoice not, O Israel. Exult not like the peoples. For you have played the whore forsaking your God. You have loved a prostitute's wages on all the threshing floors. Threshing floor and wine vat shall not feed them, and the new wine shall fail them, okay? So it's as if there's abundance here, there's celebration, and he says, but it's not going to last. All of this is going to let you down. Notice here, verse three, they shall not remain in the land of the Lord. That phrase there seems significant. What Israel had forgotten is that the land of milk and honey, the one that they were celebrating in is God's land, okay? In fact, if you read the book of Deuteronomy, Israel are merely tenants in God's land, not owners. More significantly, Baal, who they're worshiping and celebrating right now for his provision, it's not his land either. Okay. And so they shall not remain in the land of the Lord. It operates there as a reminder. But Ephraim shall return to Egypt, and they shall eat unclean food, where? In Assyria. Okay, that's where they're really headed. That's where this story is really going. And what does it mean? They shall eat unclean food in Assyria. It means that where they're heading, there's going to be no sacred and secular divide anymore. There's not going to be sacrifice and temple. There's not going to be clean and unclean. They're going to be an unclean people in an unclean place with no way to make them clean. Okay. Verse four: They shall not put drink offerings, the wine. Uh, sorry, they shall not pour drink offerings of wine to the Lord. And their sacrifices shall not please him. It shall be instead like mourners' bread to them. All who eat of it shall be defiled. When bread was involved with the sacrifice of Israel, it was holy. Because it was offered ceremoniously to the Lord and then eaten by the priests. But the bread you eat during a funeral is a different type of bread. And the reason is really simple. Because being around death in Israel makes you unclean. Bread being around death in Israel makes bread unclean. Okay? And so whereas you can offer a loaf to the Lord, you can't offer a funeral loaf. Okay? It's unclean. He says, but this is all you're going to have in your diet. There's not going to be any happy loaves to give the Lord. All you're going to have is the loaves of mourners. And so there will be no way to make an offering to the Lord. All who eat of it shall be defiled, for their bread shall be for their hunger only. It shall not come to the house of the Lord. Okay? The idea of offering bread to God was as a first fruits of the harvest. Right? God, you have provided this grain, so I'm making this loaf of bread to recognize this was yours, you gave it to me, I'm giving you back a portion to recognize that. But what they're speaking of here is an economy of scarcity. The only bread you'll have is just enough to get by. Not enough to be grateful for, if you will. Verse 5 What will you do on the day of the appointed festival, on the day of the feast of the Lord? For behold, they are going away from destruction, but Egypt shall gather them, Memphis shall bury them, Nettles shall possess their precious things of silver, Thorns shall be in their tents okay remember we're talking harvest language here so what is nettles and thorns overcoming their precious silver and their tents that's an abandoned land right that is you know um, the mansion that's gone to rot through neglect that is um, the destruction of their prosperity verse 7 the days of punishment have come the days of recompense have come Israel shall know it And then we get a statement here from Israel's mouth. And again, if we read this as Hosea shouting in the streets, imagine that what comes next is the people's response. Look at what it says. It says, the prophet is a fool. The man of the spirit is mad because of your great iniquity and your great hatred. The prophet is the watchman of Ephraim with my God. Okay, there's two possibilities here. Either they say, Hosea, you and all your friends are crazy. And then God defends him and he says, don't you understand that he's my appointed watchman and he's trying to warn you of what's coming? Remember, a watchman is someone who stood on the walls at night and if they saw an approaching attacking army, uh, army would sound the alarm so that the city would be prepared. Or it may be here, because again, the sentence is a little bit difficult. It may be saying... Ephraim is the prophet. Ephraim is the watchman. In other words, if they're going to stand as critics of the prophet, they have to identify themselves as speaking for God. Right? There's no neutrality here. To reject that they speak the word of the Lord is to speak the word of the Lord. To reject someone's judgment is to be the judge. Okay? And so there's an irony here that's basically saying: all right, which one of you speaks for God? Is it you, Ephraim? Or is it the person that I have appointed? Yet, it continues in verse 8, a fowler's snare is on all his ways and hatred in the house of his God. In other words, there's a trap. There's danger coming. They have deeply corrupted themselves as in the days of Gibeah. He will remember their iniquity. He will punish their sins in the days of Gibeah that gets us looking backwards it makes us start to think backwards in fact look at what it says in verse 10 like grapes in the wilderness I found Israel like the first fruit on the fig tree in its first season I saw your fathers imagine that opening line like grapes in the wilderness here you are walking through a desert place and you turn and here's just a wild grapevine covered in clusters of grapes good find, right? Surprising find. That's the point. Israel's beginning is miraculous. It's surprising. It wasn't natural and obvious. God took a people that were slaves and made them his nation, okay? He's reminding them of the beginning, and then he says, but they came to Baal Peor and consecrated themselves to the things of shame and became detestable like the thing they loved. Baal Peor is the place where after Balaam, this hired prophet is called upon to curse the people of Israel for the king. I believe the king of Moab. After that, Balaam goes, well, I can only say what God wants me to say. He tries to curse Israel. Blessings come out. It happens multiple times. The king's really frustrated with him and he goes, look, I can't speak curses over him, but I do know something that will get them. Take your most attractive women, make sure they're scantily clad, and go out and draw Israel into worshiping Baal, your God. And so the king pulls off this plan, and Israel is drawn into this uh, sexual, orgiastic worship of Baal. And this is the beginning of Israel's relationship with Baal. Okay? This is back in the wilderness. This is before the land of Canaan. This is right after the Exodus. This is right after Mount Sinai. This is right after the tabernacle is built. Okay? At the very beginning, Israel is unfaithful. Why is Hosea bringing it up here? Okay. It's as in the days of Gibeah. Now, there's a geographical thing going on here that you wouldn't get unless you were looking at a map. But Baal Peor is on one side of the Jordan River and Gibeah is on the opposite side. They're right next to each other, okay? And that's the connection point here. It's not that there's a significant history with Gibeah, but there is a significant present reality. As we've seen multiple times in Hosea, Gibeah is one of the primary places of Baal worship in Hosea's day. So he draws the connection, and he says, like father, like son, you are showing yourself to be just as you were in the beginning on the other side of the river. That is the picture he's drawing here. In fact, it says they concentrated them, consecrated themselves to the thing of shame. Okay. There's a play on words here. The word for Baal and the word for shame are very similar. Okay. In fact, we find a lot of the prophets changing Baal's name into the Hebrew word for shame and just, you know, uh, making a joke out of every time they say his name. That's what's happening here. Because of that, verse 11 ephraim's glory shall fly away like a bird no birth no pregnancy no conception even if they bring up children i will bereave them okay we see that pattern again right there's not going to be any birth in fact there's not even going to be any pregnancy in fact there's not even going to be conception even if there was i would kill their children before they came of age right it's that same pattern we saw earlier and again this is significant Because this is the other half of what it looks like to worship Baal. Baal gives two things if you worship him. Fruit in your vineyard and fruit of the womb. Fertility is his focus. And so God's already turned off the tap on the farms. And now he's going to shut down the pregnancies. Okay, to get their attention. He says, woe to them when I depart from them. Verse 13, Ephraim, as I have seen, was like a young palm planted in a meadow. Now, uh, if you look at your footnote here where it says young palm, it might say, or like Tyre. And I would suggest that's probably the better reading. At the very least, I don't know why Israel would be like a young palm planted in a meadow, but I can tell you why he'd be like Tyre, okay? In 722 BC, which is during the life of Hosea, um, uh, King Sargon II, okay, an Assyrian king, Destroys Tyre. And in the same year, he destroys Israel. Okay? It all happens at once. In other words, there's a comparison being made here. Just like Tyre, so also Ephraim must lead his children out to the slaughter. Give them, O Lord, verse 14, what will you give them? Give them a miscarrying womb and dry breasts. Suddenly, Hosea interjects and he calls a curse upon Israel and it's not a very great one. A miscarrying womb and dry breasts. God says, I'm going to rob them of children and effectively Hosea puts his amen on that. He says, so be it. This is the first time actually where we see Hosea entering in and if you will commiserating with the Lord, but remember where the story begins. The story begins as Hosea lives out the reality that God is experiencing in Israel, the reality of loving a woman who is unfaithful, okay? And so it's as if here, it's almost as if God gets a little too close for comfort. Remember, Hosea has two children that do not belong to him, where his wife was unfaithful and had children with another man, and so he just, he just resonates with this. It's a touch point with him. On top of that, the language he uses here is a reversal of what Jacob promises Ephraim in Genesis 49. You remember in Genesis 49, Jacob in his old age gathers all of his sons around him and he begins to prophesy their future, family by family. And when he gets to Ephraim, he talks about their abundance and their fruitfulness and he uses this same language of womb and breast. And so Ephraim here is a stand-in for all of the northern tribes, but it's a reversal of what God had planned for them, a reversal of what God had promised them because of their sin. Verse 15, Every evil of theirs is in Gilgal. There I began to hate them because of their wickedness of their deeds. We've seen many, many times that Hosea is rooted in the history of Israel. He's mentioned Baal Peor. He's mentioned Bethel, where Jacob, you know, Jacob's ladder is. He mentions place after place after place. Here, when he mentions Gilgal, he's going back to the book of Judges. Okay. The reference here is to what happens in the tribe of Benjamin, where a man and his concubine stay the night. And the whole city, Benjamites, people of Israel, surround the city and demand that this this traveling man come out so that they might rape him and instead he throws his concubine out there she's raped until morning till dead it's an insane story it's the worst part of the book of judges and so he cuts this woman up into 12 pieces sends it out to all the heads of the tribes of israel and they gather together to war against the tribe of benjamin to destroy them Why does he bring it up here? He says it's the same thing. Right? And even that story, the story of Gilgal in the book of Judges, is a reverberation of Sodom and Gomorrah. And yet it's not happening over there in the Canaanites, it's happening in here in Israel. Okay? This is the downward spiral of the nation. Because of that, he says, I will drive them out of my house, I will love them no more. All their princes are rebels. Ephraim is stricken, their root is dried up, they shall bear no fruit. Even though they give birth, I will put their beloved children to death. My God will reject them because they have not listened to him. They shall be wanderers among the nation. And so the future is very dark for Israel here, the sentence is very heavy. But again, remember, it has not yet fallen. Hosea is here a decade maybe 15 years maybe a maximum of 20 years before these things come to pass warning them of where things are headed but it, by this point in the book Hosea's hope of repentance before judgment has dwindled okay. let's finish here in chapter 10 Israel is a luxuriant vine that yields its fruit does that seem jarring Let's let's read back in chapter 9 and then notice the transition here. Ephraim is stricken. Their root is dried up. They shall bear no fruit. And then chapter 10 opens. Israel is a luxurious vine that yields its fruit. It's supposed to be jarring, but it also is the way it was supposed to be. Israel was God's vineyard. Their destiny was great. It was one of abundance, of be fruitful and multiply, of the promise to Abraham that I will make your descendants like the stars in the sky. But what happened in this destiny? Look at line two here. The more his fruit increased, the more more altars he built. As his country improved, he improved his pillars. Now, that's not just like a a Sim City pattern there, you know, where more resources means more buildings. The idea here is God abundantly and graciously fulfills his promises to Israel, and they abundantly and corruptly increase their worship of other gods, okay? The fruit, the benefit, the resources, the gifts that God have given are given to be stewarded. To use the illustration that Ezekiel uses, it's like a loving husband who has given his wife everything she ever wanted and a very strong bank account, and she spends it on her paramours, right? He says, verse 2, their heart is false. Now they must bear their guilt. The Lord will break down their altars and destroy their pillars. Israel refused to destroy them, they never should have built them, but God will bring an end to them. For now, verse 3, they will say, we have no king, for we do not fear the Lord and a king. What could he do for us? Now, that's looking forward. The idea here is one of desperation, okay? The idea is here, now we don't even have a king. But the truth is, in the ancient world, no king, no nation. The idea here is that God is going to bring judgment on Hosea, not Hosea, but Hosea is the last king of Israel. He's going to be deposed, and his people are going to be deported, and it's all one thing, okay? So he's looking down here, and he's recognizing that this false hope of political power, sometimes domestic, our king, sometimes foreign, their king, that's going to be destroyed, okay? It's not going to do anything for them verse 4 they utter mere words with empty oaths they make covenants so judgment springs up like poisonous weeds in the furrows of the field okay two things here first when it says judgment springs up like poisonous weeds the word for judgment in the old testament is the same word for justice okay the idea here is that Kings, political power, if you read the Old Testament, it's all about the promotion of justice. And that also involves oaths and covenants, okay? But here, the idea is not of the covenant with God, but foreign alliances, political maneuverings, you know, these types of things. And he says, because of that, instead of justice springing up in the land, we get poisonous weeds, this is how power works. Just like the resources we mentioned, the fruitful, the abundance is a, is a resource to be stewarded, so is power. And power is God-given to bring justice, but it can be twisted to bring death. It can be used to bring corruption. It can be poisonous, and that's what's happening in Israel. Verse 5, the inhabitants of Samaria tremble for the calf of Beth-Avon. Its people mourn for it, and so do its idolatrous priests. Those who rejoiced over it and over its glory, for it has departed from them. Okay, so we're looking here at the final days of Israel, and here this God that they've relied upon, this golden calf. Assyria comes in and they're like, it's pretty nice, I think that's mine now. And they take it back to Assyria. And so there's this ironic picture here of the God who's supposed to be delivering them taken into captivity and then left crying because their god has been taken from them okay and there's a play there's a play again an allusion to an old testament story when it says their glory has departed from them it should remind us of what happens in first samuel chapter four okay now this is very early in samuel's life he's just a kid israel is still very much in the mindset and the days of the book of judges they're a mess And so what happens is the Philistines attack Israel and the priests' sons, Eli the priest, his sons Hophni and Phinehas, uh, not Hophni and Phinehas, sorry. I'm not going to be able to recall their names. Um, But they they have this idea. They're like, well, the Philistines are scary, but we have the ark. The ark is the very presence of God. If we have the ark, there's no way we can lose this fight. And they foolishly, without consulting God or without tuning into what God is doing or even asking for his help, they foolishly try and manipulate God through the presence of his ark. They take it into battle, and God just lets the Philistines win, and they take the ark with them. Okay? And so what happens is, a messenger comes back to Eli, and sitting next to Eli is one of his son's wives who is pregnant with child. And they hear, Your sons are dead, they died on the front lines. And they hear the Philistines won the battle. And they hear the ark has been captured. And at that point, she goes into labor. And the labor is so painful and so quick that it kills her. And the son survives. And with her dying breath, she says, name him Ichabod. For the glory of God has departed. Okay? She names her son because of the horror of what's just happened, that the ark has been captive. But there's a difference here. Because when this golden calf goes into Assyria, it just sits on a shelf. But you know what happens in 1 Samuel 4? They take the ark and they put it in their own temple, the temple of Dagon. And they come in the next morning and this statue to Dagon is laying prostrate before the ark. And so they set him back up and they come back the next day and he's laying that way again and now his hands and his feet have been severed. And they go, oh, this isn't good. We can't keep the ark, right? That's not going to happen. With the glory of Samaria here, with the bull of Samaria, because it is not a god, and it has no power, which means that their, word, or their crying here is, you know, uh, over spilt milk. Verse six: The thing itself shall be carried to Assyria as a tribute to the great king. Ephraim shall be put to shame, and Israel shall be ashamed of his idol. And that's the problem with idolatrous worship. When we worship things that aren't God, they let us down. Okay? They become our shame. Verse 7, Samaria's king shall perish like a twig on the face of the waters. Okay, the idea here is that he may be a king in title, but what's about to happen, he will have no control over. Right? If you set a twig in the water, the twig has lost all power of destiny. It is now the rapid river that determines its fate. That's what it's going to be clearly like for Hosea. What happens will happen to him. He's no longer going to be an active participant in his own story, but acted upon. That's the picture here. The high places of Avon, the sin of Israel shall be destroyed. Thorn and thistle shall grow up on their altars. And they shall say to the mountains, cover us, and to the hills, fall on us. Jesus picks up on this language. And puts it forward to the return of Christ. Revelation picks up on it as well. And the idea here of cover us and fall on us. The idea here is choosing death over what's about to happen. The idea is a horrible recognition of the judgment that is impending. Verse 9. From the days of Gibeah you have sinned, O Israel. There they have continued Shall not the war against unjust overtake them in Gibeah? I think I preemptively spoke of this with Gilgal, but Gibeah would be the story from the book of Judges. And so in this context, it actually makes even more sense. Verse 9, from the days of Gibeah, you have sinned, O Israel. Okay, that's, like I said, it's the highlight reel of the worst story in Israel's history. And he says, but it's really a continuation of where you are. And then shall not the war against the unjust overtake them in Gibeah? In other words, last time it led to war, here it does now. Verse 10, when I please, I will discipline them. And the nations shall be gathered against them, where they are bound up for their double iniquity. Ephraim was a trained calf that loved to thresh, and I spared her fair neck. So again, he's looking back here, and he basically says you were like a cow okay and there's probably some touch point here between the golden calf and israel but he says in the beginning you were like a trained calf that loved to thresh okay and the idea here of threshing is here's this animal and he's walking across the grain and as he does so he's separating the chaff from the wheat it's a normal thing but if this is if this is appropriate to use the words of deuteronomy Calves were to thresh unmuzzled so that they could eat and enjoy the crop that they were working, you know, uh, working to thresh. And so the idea here is, if first Israel, you were a strong and humble servant. And you loved to thresh. Why? Because I had built a life that was healthy and good for you. He says, but I will put Ephraim to the yoke. Judah must plow. Jacob must harrow for himself. Effectively, God's saying there's, there's two ways here. There's the easy way and the hard way. There's the way of life that Moses set before you, but there is another way. There's the service that you love to thresh, and then there's the hard yoke. Okay? And I think it's important to remember that God's ultimate goal here is not just to punish Israel, but to discipline them, as we saw just a few verses ago. The goal here is not just to give them what they deserve, but to bring them somewhere, to accomplish something. Okay? And so they've chosen the hard way. Instead, here's the suggestion, here's the plan, here's how it should have been. Verse 12, sow for yourself righteousness, reap steadfast love, break up your fallow ground, for it's time to seek the Lord that he may come in And rain righteousness upon you. That's the calling, and it's the calling to Hosea's audience even now. Change course. It's not too late to break up the fallow ground. But what have they done instead? What have they been doing up to this point? Verse 13 You have plowed iniquity, you have reaped injustice, you have eaten the fruit of lies because you have trusted in your own way and in the multitude of your warriors. Here's a poignant reflection there. He says, one of the reasons that you've chosen the wrong path is because you're comfortable in your own strength, right? Because you have enough tanks and enough things to protect yourself, okay? Verse 14, therefore, the tumult of war shall arise among your people. This is the third or fourth time tonight that we find Israel trusting in something, and God saying, therefore, I'm going to take it away. We found Israel standing upon something, having a false hope in something, and God says, it's going to fail you, and I'll make sure of it. Verse 14, therefore, the tumult of war shall arise among your people, and all your fortresses shall be destroyed. As Shalman destroyed Beth Arbel on the day of battle, mothers were dashed into pieces with their children, thus it shall be done to you, O Bethel, because of your great evil. At dawn, the king of Israel shall be utterly cut off. Now, it makes a reference here to uh, Shalman, who destroyed Beth Arbel. This Shalman may be Shalmanzer, okay, who is a well-known king of Assyria, but even then, we don't have a historical record of a battle at Beth Arbel, okay, but clearly Hosea, and his audience know it, okay? It's as if he's using a recent event in the news to go, this is what's coming, and it's going to happen here, okay? And then we get kind of the final statement again in verse 15, thus it shall be done to you, O Bethel, because of your great evil at dawn, the king of Israel shall be utterly cut off, okay? And so here it's as if the judgment is is impending and what it's primarily going to look like is the end of the king and therefore the end of the kingdom. Now there's no getting around the intensity of these chapters and we had to pause here because we have to stop somewhere but remember remember these chapters for next week because just like that strange pivot we saw from a fruitless vine to an abundant vineyard the transition between what we just read, complete and utter destruction, irreversible, and what happens in chapter 11 is stark. Okay? It is different. And so, so here, you know, if you will, Hosea sees the end of Israel coming, and it's not coming a long way down the pike. It's coming in his lifetime. It's coming in the not-so-distant future. It's not too late to turn around, but it has to be a complete turnaround from sowing wickedness to sowing righteousness. Galatians makes the same warning for us. Do not be deceived, Paul says. God is not mocked, for what we sow we will also reap. But as we will see, as we have seen, as we've seen even in the model that Hosea presented for us in the beginning. There is going to be judgment, and then. God is going to watch just like Hosea did. His wife break the covenant, divorce and leave the family, sell herself into slavery and ruin her life. And then Hosea is going to end and buy her back for himself, renew their marriage vows and restore them so it is a message of judgment but it is one that leads to grace it is a dark backdrop but it makes what happens next shine all the brighter let's pray father i worry about that image that we opened with tonight sound the alarm for there is a vulture over the house of the lord I pray, Lord, that we wouldn't be insensitive to the evils of our own time, to the deservation of impending judgment, to the wickedness of our own nation, of our own church, of our own family, of our own city, Lord. I pray that you'd give us eyes like you gave the prophets to see the way you see things. And we do pray, God, that you would have mercy on us and, our, and our, on our nation. But we thank you, Lord, that we're not asking for something out of your character, but something we even see in Hosea. Yes, Hosea speaks of judgment in the last days of Israel's history, but God has been patient and gracious with them for generations. And when we read the story of First and Second Kings, we're struck not by your quick temper, but by your inexhaustible patience and how often you continue to warn and to wait. I pray, Lord, that that kindness would draw us to repentance. I pray, Lord, that we as a nation, as a people, would see your grace and your goodness and your patience to us, the abundant resources and blessings you've given us, and that we would be drawn to you. We ask this in your name. Amen.